Today is March 29th, 2014, and this is episode 96. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and man, are my legs tired. Crystal and I spent the week in San Francisco for the Coin Summit Conference. It was a really interesting event. Following up on episode 95's questions about the Bitcoin Foundation and in the immediate aftermath of the IRS clarification, I grabbed a talk with Patrick Merck on the foundation, the data organization, transparency, insurance, and more. you got to create trust in, in different ways. We have this opportunity right now to create different types of exchanges, non-custodial accounts, multi-sig accounts, things like that, decentralized exchanges, where you're not always relying on trust to facilitate the transaction. Then, for the rest of today's episode, we're pleased to feature one of my favorite panels from the event. Andreas Antonopoulos of Blockchain.info, and of course, one of the hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Professor Susan Athey of Stanford, and Jonathan Levin of Coinometrics discuss whether Bitcoin is a flash in the pan. If they try to stomp on Bitcoin, they're going to discover that Bitcoin was the little gecko technology. And when you stomp on the gecko, you cause it to evolve until it becomes a Komodo dragon and it bites off your foot. Moderated by Nathaniel Popper of the New York Times, this is not to be missed. In other news, the LTB coin project is progressing nicely with our third live Q&A held earlier today. If you'd like to learn more or watch any of these, visit ltbcoin.com. It's another good one, so we'll get right into it. Enjoy the show. Uh, interview 7, Patrick Merck, uh, Bitcoin Foundation slash data. This is uh, Day 2 Coin Summit. Patrick, thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Bitcoin today. Yeah, thanks, Adam. So yesterday during the panel, you know, I, when I travel, I don't look at the internet or do anything. I'm a total Luddite. Yeah. So I didn't know about the uh, IRS guidance that came out, but it actually is sort of weird and sort of contradictory, and I wanted to get your, your thoughts on it. Can you kind of give us a summary of what they've said? Yeah, so essentially you're going to treat Bitcoin as property, as an asset, um, which in some contexts makes a lot of sense. Uh, so if you're a speculator and you're an investor, you buy Bitcoin, you buy it at one price, you sell it at another, you book a capital loss, capital gain. That all makes perfect sense. That's what you would expect. Um, what's uh, interesting and potentially problematic uh, is that you're applying that same framework even when people are using Bitcoin as a currency for transacting, so merchant transactions. So if I acquire a Bitcoin for providing services to somebody and I use a, I spend a bit cent on a cup of coffee, uh, even if that transaction occurred within, you know, say, half an hour of each other, now I'm having to book and realize either gain or loss on that transaction. Uh, and that's just, it's not, a t it's, not a, it's, it's untenable, uh, the way that's going to actually play out uh, in the real world. So we need to go back and rethink some of how they did this. So this is IRS guidance that came out, you know, two, three weeks before the taxable, you know, before we actually have to turn in our income tax. I mean, you made a comment about everybody gets to extend. You know, certainly we're in this situation, I guess. We thought we had our taxes pretty well taken care of because we were, you know, following the FinCEN guidance that basically said that any money we take out of Bitcoin and into dollars, that's something we have to deal with from a taxable standpoint. But it's that's aggressively different than this new guidance. So, I mean, like, do we need to go back through and redo all of our taxes? Uh, well, you, in fact, you might have to go back and redo all your taxes and rethink all your taxes. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously the timing was 
interesting, to say the least. Uh, but you point at a deeper, deeper uh, kind of conflict uh, within the two treatments. Uh, so there's the obvious kind of at the surface layer, well, FinCEN calls it money and, and the IRS calls it property, which may or may not really be a, you know, a big conflict. I mean, uh, maybe you know, you're just talking about an asset as a substitute for money on the fence. That's how you can make that argument. But the really deeper conflict that's happening uh, within one agency, which is slightly disappointing, is that in the FinCEN guidance, there was encouragement to use Bitcoin as a currency, to use it to pay for things, for goods and services. And in the IRS guidance, essentially they're doing the opposite. They're discouraging its use as a currency and for paying for goods and services and encouraging investment and speculation in the in, in the Bitcoin as an asset. So the guidance from the first time actually is completely contrary to the guidance that's been given now. And since this new IRS guidance is retroactive indefinitely, I guess... I mean, there wasn't, there didn't seem like there was a time frame associated with it, so I'm assuming that old transactions aren't grandfathered in. Well, correct, because guidance isn't rulemaking. So they're saying, we didn't create new <laughs> rules here. Yeah, right. Uh, we didn't create new rules here, but uh, we're just interpreting our old rules, you know, as a, as a public service. So, yeah. you know, you just, you should have figured this out. You know, it was all there in the <laughs> rules. We're just clarifying, because obviously you didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, they did put a provision, a little sense in there that says, listen, if you can reasonably show that, you know, you didn't understand it or you don't have the records anymore or something, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll consider forgiveness in those cases. So, so you're saying that my lack of organization is actually potentially a saving grace in this situation. <laughs> we won't get into incentive structures in the real world. So, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, uh, so one of the other organizations that you're involved in, besides the Bitcoin Foundation, is a relatively new group called Data. And uh, again, you're involved as a board member? That's correct. I'm on the board of directors. So, uh, you know, we had a conversation yesterday with Eden Yago about, you know, what data is, what data is trying to do. And so, I mean, like, again, from your perspective, how does this fit in compared to the Bitcoin Foundation relative to the Bitcoin Foundation? Where are the, where are the overlaps? Where is data doing something fundamentally different? Yeah. So when you think about the Bitcoin Foundation, you, you know, you have a member-driven organization. It's meant to be kind of a community resource. We're still obviously working through some growing pains to get to this point, but, but that's the goal. And the Bitcoin Foundation is supposed to represent members in support of the Bitcoin protocol, keeping the Bitcoin Bitcoin protocol open, extensible, participatory, so that anybody can use it freely. Right. While we're doing that, there are certain problems. How do you grow the ecosystem, particularly at the exchange level, which has been now considered a critical control point in the intersection between the digital economy and the traditional financial economy? Um, so how do you manage that? So we can make some movement on that, and we have been working on those issues. But at, our, at, at its heart, the foundation is focused on the protocol. We talk about protocol neutrality, user-defined privacy, things that really support kind of how you can use the protocol uh, as an individual. The exchanges are, it's natural that it's going to evolve, that the exchanges are going to want to have their own kind of voice. And they should, because they have very, very different issues that they have to deal with, in particular around uh, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, um, data security, privacy issues. They're going to have distinct issues. And frankly, it's a resource drain on the foundation to support that all the time. And so this is where data comes in? And sorry, yeah, to wrap that up, that's where data should come in, right? And the first thing that you can do to help move that the needle on those issues right now is to create best practices, security guidelines, standards for operating a Bitcoin exchange, a digital currency exchange in general. 
So one of the things that I've been kind of uh, waiting and expecting, and now I think it's starting to happen, is there, there are two things. One is on the transparency side. Again, this is all so much more relevant in the aftermath of the Gox incident. You know, so on the one hand, you have transparency where if there are issues, there are ways, you know, if, if Mt. Gox had been a transparent institution, we would have been able to see that these were issues way before it got to the point where now it's this horrible thing and nobody is going to take years or months to unwrap it just because it all happened privately, you know, it's a non-transparently. So that's one side of it. I'm curious about, you know, what you think for exchanges if that, if we have now passed a tipping point there. And then the other side of it is around insurance and the idea that you know, exchanges, I mean, exchanges in the conventional world are insured. There just hasn't been the willingness or the ability to do it yet. But when insurance comes in, aren't standards that, you know, make it so that insurance can be affordable for good players versus bad players? Isn't that kind of an inevitability? Yeah, so as people gain insurance, uh, uh, the insurance companies will put pressure to increase standards and best practices and all that. It's a nice, healthy, virtuous cycle there. Um, as far as the transparency, I agree. Absolutely, 100%. And I think, you know, we're seeing this interesting shift from, well, I have a friend, Ryan Strass, and he, he's, he, after the Gox thing, he said, the whole point uh, of Bitcoin wasn't to replace trusted third parties with trustless third parties, right? So you've got to create trust in, in different ways. And we have this opportunity right now to create different types of exchanges, non-custodial accounts, multi-sig accounts, things like that, decentralized exchanges, where you're not always relying on trust to facilitate the transaction, there will probably always be exchanges that work that way, and that's fine. They're going to face the highest requirements, the highest burdens on the regulatory side and the consumer protection field. They're the ones that are going to need to go get the insurance, and they're the ones who are going to be held to standards by their insurance companies. Uh, in the interim, I think there's an opportunity to set, set minimum standards, set best practices, lay them out, let people understand how to build a safe exchange, and as a consumer, what a safe exchange looks like. So, same question applied to the data organization and the Bitcoin Foundation organization. These are organizations that so far aren't really very transparent, and yet they are going to be holding funds of members. So is there any intention, expectation, either on your part or institutionally, that transparency should be something that's, you know, for things beyond exchanges? Yeah. No, I absolutely think that would be a good thing, right? Um, I can't speak for data yet because it's very fledgling. Uh, on the foundation, we file our Form 990 and we publish it. We publish it fast. Uh, other nonprofits, it takes, they, they usually wait it out until the IRS publishes it. Um, you know, when we did our first one, we published it um, very quickly. We intend to do the exact same thing this year. Um, so that's one level of transparency. I think that there are other opportunities to create even further transparency. And we talked about this early. Uh, how do we do that? How do we create transparency using the blockchain without revealing people's private information? And it's, it's, it's a difficult problem to solve. I know people are working on it. But I think if there's a good solution, I'm sure we would embrace it. So there have been some questions about, since Mt. Gox was a pivotal part of the foundation for a long period of time, whether or not any foundation funds were stored at Mt. Gox. And this hasn't, there hasn't been a statement on this yet. Again, if you don't want to answer, you don't have to, but it's a question I think people would like to know the answer to. Sure thing. So when it comes to Matt Gox, I, I simply can't comment because there's an ongoing criminal investigation. We're certainly not a target or anything like that, but you know, we are uh, talking to law enforcement about certain things that may or may not have happened. No one should have any concerns about the, the general financial welfare of the Bitcoin Foundation in general. Okay. So, you know, final thoughts, what is next for the foundation or for data? What are the exciting things on your horizon that you think that people should really be paying attention to? Yeah, so uh, we have a, a number of really interesting projects coming up. So for data, we have the annual meeting coming up. I think, there's a, again, there's a big opportunity for the community to get involved in shaping sort of what the best practices should look like. 
Um, and not just from, you know, the point of view of a lawyer writing down rules. Uh, that's not fun for anybody, <laughs> even the lawyers, I promise. But th- there can be some technical advancement there as well. So I know like Greg Maxwell is working on some interesting things about provably uh, 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 solvent exchanges and things like that. Like that's a really interesting way of attacking standards and best practices. So that that's interesting on the data side. On, on the Bitcoin Foundation side, we have a lot of kind of things in the hopper. We're working uh, on the sell, solving some of the in the U.S. some of these state uh, regulatory issues by creating a kind of model open uh, model rule that uh, some of the state regulators and the task force can look at and draw from. Um, we hopefully and soon will uh, open source that so that people can kind of you know add their comments in. Uh, I, I would love to put it on GitHub if I can, uh, right alongside our bylaws. Uh, I would love to see more people uh, participate and. Shaping our bylaws through GitHub, um, uh, we put them out there for people to make. Our, even our bylaws are governing document a uh, community project, um, but you know we haven't had a lot of action there. Just a little bit, but there's been some good dialogue in the, the, the some of the areas where there's been uh, pull requests there. And then with Jim Harper coming on board as our global policy council, which is very exciting to me, he's going to have a study that he's going to release on uh, the threat matrix, the risk factors, how we can respond to those things from from regulators, from banks, things like that. And that'll serve as our platform for our public policy goals going forward. And again, opening that up to community involvement. So uh, when are you planning on paying your taxes? (laughs) <laughs> Are you filing Jeez. for an extension? <laughs> I'm filing for an extension. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Patrick Merck, thank you very much for your time. Yep, thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for March 29th, 2014. Now that development of Next is becoming more formalized, the community has begun creating Next Improvement Proposals, or NIPs, to suggest extensions, modifications, and improvements for the platform. As you might suspect, these are modeled after the mechanisms used by Python and Bitcoin. Improvement proposals in progress are being discussed on the new forums at nxtforum.org. Proposals being crafted right now are related to two-factor authentication for next clients, arbitrary asset pairings on the decentralized asset exchange, and a mechanism for allowing transaction fees to be automatically regulated by the network. In other news, Brian Snyder represented Next at Coin Summit in San Francisco, and his presentation can be found on the Coin Summit channel on YouTube. For more general information on Next, head to nextcrypto.org or mynxt.org, and stay tuned for more news on Next on the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. We have a I think a fun panel to start the day today. So I'd like to welcome Nathaniel from the New York Times, Susan from Stanford University, Andreas from blockchain.info, and Jonathan from Coinometrics. Big round of applause. Squeeze you on the cup. Good morning. So I guess we've been set up here to answer the question, is Bitcoin a flash in a pan? And I would venture to say that I could answer that question for all of you. Uh, If it's not no, let me know right now. Um, But uh, we have, these are three incredibly smart people um, with, I think, rather different opinions about where Bitcoin might be going. So I'm going to try to draw that out a little bit. And I thought a good place to start might be looking at Bitcoin 
from each of your perspectives, what is the part of the current ecosystem that is most likely to survive, and what is the part that you think is least likely to survive at this point? And then maybe that'll sort of get us going from there. Maybe start with you, Susan. Sure. So I think that the sort of amazing organic growth of Bitcoin by aficionados, um, people who were early adopters and are just really excited about the technology, I think that that energy will stay and that's going to sort of um, support the the peer-to-peer community of Bitcoin. I think that one something that's sort of an open question for me is some of the specific vertical challenges that a lot of the people here are starting startups to solve. There's a question of how those are going to get solved best. So if you think of some of the, the different kinds of money movement solutions, remittance solutions, um, your services for businesses, some of those I think will continue to be based on Bitcoin, but I also think it's possible that some of those specific applications, maybe they need a lighter touch, maybe they need more privacy, maybe they need less privacy, maybe they need a tweak to satisfy regulators. And so at that point it'll be sort of a race between something that's built on top of Bitcoin to to adapt to the, the, the specific circumstances or maybe something that's forked or done independently. Hmm. Yeah, so I think there's um, some technical challenges that probably need to be overcome as well, not just the vertical ones. So I think there's also uh, the centralization of mining is uh, a potential problem down the line with uh, lower block rewards and power of miners to determine transaction fees. Um, I think there's um, the technology of uh, distributed value exchange is definitely going to stay, uh, but I have questions on whether proof of work in the current architecture is able to sustain that over the long term. Hmm. I think, well, blockchain, the blockchain technology is the enduring gift of Satoshi Nakamoto, and that will uh, radically transform our world for decades to come. I think there's no doubt in my mind that. Uh, currencies based on blockchain technology, as well as uh, a myriad of other applications based on the ability to do decentralized trust at scale, uh, will transform many aspects of the internet, many aspects of social interactions, finance, law, accounting, and society in general in ways that we can't even imagine yet. Spoken like a true employee of blockchain.info. <laughs> well, it's, it's not about blockchain.info, although uh, I think that company really captured, at least in its name, the, the essence of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But um, really, for the first time in history, we have the ability to do decentralized trust at scale across distances between individuals who have never met before. Uh, that is radical, uh, and it has implications we can't even imagine. Now, out of that, many currencies will evolve. I think uh, Bitcoin is probably going to stick around uh, for a very long time, and I think that's because the early network effect has generated enough momentum that any of the problems will be fixed. And all of the arguments I hear about why Bitcoin will fail seem eerily reminiscent of 1992 on the internet and how it couldn't do voice, it couldn't do video, it couldn't scale, it wouldn't work, it couldn't deliver quality, and it did, did, and it did. So I I just want to underscore, I think that was really well put, that there's just this fundamental technology of the ledger and the security around the ledger and the decentralized trust. And 
So while I agree that, that Bitcoin is very likely to stick around for a very long time, there, there's also all sorts of things that we haven't even thought of that you can do with that technology. And, you know, some of the, the current uses of, you know, the, the store of value and the, the payment mechanism are very subject to regulation. And so you can see things having, needing to evolve in certain ways to meet the regulatory environment. But at a fundamental level, you know, a ledger... Um, is a powerful concept, and I don't see how you regulate away the fundamental technological innovation and all the things that you can do with it. And so that's one reason that I'm a believer in the, in the movement and all of the technology and development that's going on around it is, is going to be multipurpose. It's not, it's, it's, it's not just for what we see today, but a lot of that investment and innovation is also going to get purpose to expand the range of applications. And again, we can't necessarily imagine or predict what all of those will be, but this sort of fundamental technological innovation is it's happened. It can't unhappen. And so, so we've entered sort of a new era of being able to do things on the internet. Um, all right. Well, I'd like to go back to the, uh, to the, to the skepticism, dig out the skepticism in each of you a little bit. And let's say, um, if, if you were Satoshi and, and maybe one of you are, I don't know, but if you were, and you were looking back and redesigning it, what would you change? And I know, Jonathan, I had an interesting conversation with you about this yesterday, so let's start with you and maybe you can get the argument going. So I think Bitcoin solved um, and did create this technology, this ledger that, that, that allows for decentralized trust, but it does so through proof of work, which is expensive in terms of electricity and might not be um, the long-term way of securing these blockchains. And I think that I would spend a lot longer uh, thinking about that problem and making a more cost-efficient solution um, that was eventually more decentralized than proof-of-work is going to be. Um, the other thing that I would definitely change is the currency design. Um, I think that the distribution of coins came out far too quickly for something that should scale over a very long period of time and disproportionately rewarding early, early adopters over people who are going to adopt the currency down the line. Can, just let me refine your answer. Are you, you're, do you think it was a good thing that early adopters were rewarded, just not as much as they were? Well, I think it's problematic that we had um, a very, we've got a finite money supply and a lot of coins came out, we're more than halfway through the money supply and we've had a lot of failures of companies, a lot of people being defrauded, 10% of the money supply is in the hands of criminals and we need to then advocate um, a Bitcoin price going through the roof and giving material value to those people rather than a more distributed um, money supply that goes to the people who need it. I, I, I'm actually quite happy. Wait, Look, can the, we, I want to hear your response to that, but at first, can we hear from you what you would uh, change? Maybe that's where you're going, but what, if you were going back and redesigning it, would you change anything or? or? Well, I would say the distribution of early adopters at the moment, uh, if 10% is in the, in the hands of criminals, that's a vast improvement over the rest of our economy where 80% of the money is in the hands of criminals and they own the banks. <laughs> Because the rest of the money is in the hands of, uh, of brilliant people who saw the early potential of okay. uh, technology and took a huge leap of faith with enormous personal risk in order to achieve that. And I'm not one of those early holders, trust me, I'm not a Bitcoin millionaire. But um, Okay, so, so what, what things would change? Um, 
I, I think it's very difficult to go back and apply hindsight in this because I don't think we even know the answers yet. Uh, a lot of these things are going to get hashed out. And I think Bitcoin doesn't have to be perfect as both a store of value and a means of exchange in order to be successful. If it turns out to be less successful as a means of exchange, then it can provide a proof-of-stake reserve currency for many other coins that are much more nimble, if that is the need in the market. So far, I don't think we have indications that that's a problem. We talk about centralization of mining, but people often forget that if you have CPU-friendly mining, the easiest way to mine is to compromise 15 million bots and create a botnet, and then all of the mining is in the hands of criminals. Um, so there is that trade-off. You know, ASICs actually provide protection against botnet mining. Um, and the proof of work can actually change. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the ability of Bitcoin to change. It's already changed quite dramatically from the early design in 2009. And it can change again. This is a work in progress. Now, it's not going to be elegant change necessarily. The one thing I would have done differently um, would, be, uh, would have been a much stronger... A layer of fungible uh, anonymity and privacy in the transaction layer. Much stronger fungibility, encryption of, of the amounts, as well as the sender and recipient addresses, so that you can't track anything on the blockchain. Susan? Sure. So I think it's also, I agree with the things that you've said. Um, it's hard to second guess because if you think about what it takes to develop sort of interest and trust in, in something really new like this, the fact that the way it was designed managed to accomplish that is kind of amazing. I mean, not only was this group sort of brilliant at security, but they also really thought through the incentives and, mm -hmm. and, and you know, the thing they created really captured the imagination as well as the, the um, investment of a large group of people. So the mining kind of provided you know, a, a reason to be involved in the whole system, a financial reason, which then helped grow the ecosystem. So I, you know, that's a pretty amazing thing that this, that this same concept, this mining concept provided incentives, helped sort of bootstrap the system and also provided its security. It's, it's, it's sort of an amazing insight. That said, you know, I wish it didn't take so much electricity as well. Um, I, I wonder and, if anybody's done a study comparing the cost of electricity for mining on a per transaction basis with the cost of guards, vaults, trucks, pallets of money being moved around the country, the data centers doing fraud protection on the visa network, and all of the other ancillary functions that are completely replaced by blockchain technology. Because I, I would assume, under what, from what I've seen, and being working in the financial services industry in, in fraud prevention and security, that the cost of those things is massive. And on a per-transaction basis, mining might be a much more elegant, much cheaper solutions. And therefore, this might be the greenest currency we've ever had. But, but, but hold you, on, it could still be greener. I mean, it, it could be greener, and we're seeing new proof-of-work algorithms. So it's going to be very difficult to change the proof-of-work algorithms, though, because you've got to go and get consensus from the miners to blow up their own business. Um, so that's going to be a bit difficult to do. But if, if necessary, the proof-of-work algorithm can be changed, because the nice thing is that it's always just for the next block. So you could say, you know, 100 blocks from now, new algorithm. Yeah, but you would have a big problem convincing all the people investing millions of dollars into ASIC miners that are specialized in doing just right. this. 
And then also the, the kind of cost of electricity has a two-sided thing because if it's not that expensive, if it is really efficient, then a 51% attack is more economical. Right. So there's yeah. a bit of a trade-off there as well. Exactly. And, and again, just, with, uh, just as with botnets, it's, it's really fascinating how mining actually provides such good equilibrium that you can figure out the price of electricity on average just by reverse engineering the difficulty. It's such a beautifully engineered market that it efficiently calculates the price equilibrium. Although we're now moving to a world where we also have, where Bitcoin also has vaults and guards and high security. I mean, obviously, to a lesser degree than gold and gold does and 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 dollar bills do. But um, I think that's those are really temporary measures because what we're seeing at the same time is the development of hardware wallets and other primary security mechanisms based on trusted computing that are much better solutions than vaults right. and buried treasure. I, it's interesting, Susan. You're the, I think you're the first person I've heard who starts by referring to Satoshi as they rather than an individual. Um, uh, I guess we shouldn't probably go down that rabbit hole, but, but let's, uh, let's talk about alternatives that are out there um, because obviously there are a lot of challengers and altcoins and... And I'm curious which which of those alternatives you see as having the, the greatest chance of success at this point, or which of the models at least you see as having the greatest chance of success, given what you, we've said about you know mining electricity, this sort of thing. Sure. So I guess I mean I think one of the functionalities that and you've already brought this up is is the privacy and anonymity. So. Um, you know, for fitting into, there's a couple of reasons why this is really important. For fitting into a regulatory framework, it can be very important that if you trade a dollar for a Bitcoin, that you know where your Bitcoin is landing, that you know the identity of the wallet, that you know that that wallet address is not in, say, North Korea, that it's not subject to sanctions. Um, and so the, the inability today to really verify the holder of an address is an issue. On the other hand, if you thought about a company doing a lot of its internal business over the blockchain, then even they would worry, they would have to take a lot of effort to make sure that they weren't revealing company secrets that way. And of course, there's people out here who get paid in Bitcoin, and I could probably figure out your salary if I worked at it. And so I think that the the, the current system is kind of the worst of both worlds in some ways. It's not fully anonymous because I, if, with some effort I can track people, but it's not fully private, so I still worry that even if I take steps to hide myself that someone might still figure me out in some way that I hadn't anticipated. Of course, very sophisticated people can get around that, but for sort of most people. So what do you do with that? Well, I think there's a couple of directions. One is that you know, we build things on top of the, the current system, better an anonymity tools as well as better identity tools so that you can have identity when you need it and not have it when you don't want it. Um, but you might also imagine that this could be a feature of alternative coins or systems that might have this baked in a little more naturally. And I'm, I, don't, I don't have a perfect solution to that today, but it's just a direction where I think innovation could happen, and it's a little hard to predict which of these paths will work out. And then, you know, so there's, there's other kinds of applications you could imagine where you could actually provide a company with its own private ledger using fork, basically forking the technology, but just the, it's not that I'm in, being anonymous on the public ledger, but you just have a private ledger. And that type of technology, I think, is very interesting. 
Um, Ripple Labs, where I'm an advisor, um, has a different architecture that makes it easier and more natural to, to choose who you trust and who you interact with. So in their system, it's easier to, to, to choose that I'm only going to trust people, say, who bank at my bank. Um, and that type of, of sort of architecture can be more friendly uh, to regulators in certain situations. But you know, we don't know yet what the regulators are really going to ask for. And until we know with certainty sort of what they want and what they say is okay, it's hard to know which technology is going to fit into it best. Hmm. Well, we don't know what the regulators are going to ask for, but I think I know what my answer will be. No. Um, listen, right now we have a situation where we have a massive imbalance in the centers of power and democracy, both in this country and across the world. Uh, organizations like Wachovia and HSBC commit 20,000, 30,000 anti-money laundering violations knowingly every single year and don't get punished. And at the same time, we have a situation where we want to create the ultimate trackable money so that even cash has become suspicious. Government gets to have secrecy while they strip us of privacy. Secrecy is just the word they use for their privacy while they strip us of ours. And that's not the way it should be. Government should be fully transparent, and we as individuals should have the right to privacy, a right that's been encoded since the Magna Carta. And blockchain technologies actually give us the ability to do that because they allow uh, radical transparency is easier than radical anonymity. And if you do traditional law enforcement, which involves unraveling conspiracies and turning people, states' evidence against other people in the conspiracy, you can actually track things quite effectively in the blockchain. What you can't do is ubiquitous surveillance, and that's the right balance. So we can achieve individual privacy while causing governments to gravitate towards radical transparency in their ledger, as it should be, so that they can gain the consent of the governed. We're in an unbalanced situation. And the regulators have this idea that they have power over the use of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is the first transnational global currency, and the blockchain technology isn't going anywhere. And it can create these transnational currencies. If they try to stomp on Bitcoin, they're going to discover that Bitcoin was the little gecko technology, like Napster was the benign file-sharing technology. And when you stomp on the gecko, you cause it to evolve until it becomes a Komodo dragon, and it bites off your foot next time you try to stomp on it. Um, if, we, if the regulators try to stop Bitcoin, they're going to end up with much stealthier technologies, because the evolution of currencies will create venomous versions to resist regulation. And in a transnational currency, the currency will flow to the places where it can go most easily. Um, so I think it's important to understand that the regulators both have limited power and should have limited power. Because while we're trying to appease regulators in the US and give them identity tracking and give them full transparency of individuals' transactions, regulators in Egypt are using that to drag people out of their homes and torture them as they are doing in dozens of other countries around the world. And we need to be more aware that this is the global environment we live in. Individual privacy means freedom of association and expression. It's a cherished right. It's one we have to absolutely defend. We have to do it for the places where owning currency and using it as an empowerment tool as an individual gets you killed. 
So when the regulators come and they say, let's fix Bitcoin to make it more palatable so that we can regulate Bitcoin like we haven't regulated HSBC, I say, go away. Bitcoin's fine. You want to jump in there? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I take a slightly different tack, but um, <laughs> I think that I think that the question is, is it's, it's definitely a subversive technology and something that can subvert good regimes and bad regimes, and we need to obviously um, protect the privacy of everyone who uses the blockchain today. Like Susan said, when um, I look at the blockchain, I can go through and see what who is transacting with who, and we can identify public addresses, and we can see what shops people go to and, and things like that, and that's not acceptable. Um, and you, you end up in a system that, that doesn't work, and finding some way of uh, uh, creating privacy for all the transactions that need to be private and transparency for the transactions that need to be transparent is something that everyone needs to work towards as a goal. Um, the, the, the thing for me about the alternatives that could come out is exactly that kind of implementation. Um, something that's palatable to the masses rather than a system that we have today, which is uh, essentially public uh, knowledge about everyone's transactions is not palatable to the general public. Yeah. And, our, and, and it's not tenable for corporations either. I mean, that's a big thing that Susan mentioned. Uh, I get paid my entire income in, in Bitcoin. Our company, Blockchain, doesn't have a bank account. We operate entirely in Bitcoin. Now, we can't do payroll if the treasury account just pays individuals, because then it, you can track the treasury account and the individuals, and then we become a completely transparent organization. That's a competitive disadvantage. So, so what is, for each of you, I mean, it sounds like there's sort of an agreement that actually there's, um, rather than being too much anonymity, there's too little anonymity. Um, on that front, at least, where, where do you see the most likely next move? Well, I still think that, you know, taking... Um, into account everything you said about the risks of losing privacy, that it, it's, it's not totally unreasonable that a financial institution should know who they're transacting with at the first hop. So at the time you trade dollars to bitcoins, knowing who's receiving those bitcoins. But then at that point, there are many applications where people in the hop from there would like to have their privacy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my academic research, I do research with Internet browsing data as well as now, you know, mining the blockchain and trying to understand transactions. As a researcher, you know, it's fabulous that the blockchain is so open and that not that many people are using anonymity tools right now. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I, it, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of the fact, uh, the idea that it, it can't, that mass surveillance isn't possible. I think today mass surveillance is possible, especially if you combined a couple of data sources. So yeah. if you had a lot of resources at your disposal and you really wanted to go after a particular person and you looked at their, you know, their internet and their phone usage and things like that, I think you would be able to probably triangulate them unless they were pretty sophisticated. And so, you know, it is what it is. Um, and I think if we had added, if we'd had more identity from the beginning, it never would have grown. So I don't yeah. want to criticize sort of the way that it's evolved. But as it kind of goes out to prime time, you want to be able to, to avoid mass surveillance, avoid individuals poking you out, but allow the financial institutions, which, you know, at the moment are the on-ramps and off-ramps to have some control over who they're transacting with at the first, at the, at the entrance and exit of the system. We, we have a couple of technologies. 
technologies that are beginning to address this issue. Uh, CoinJoin is getting more broadly deployed. Uh, that's a technology that is used broadly by corporations in order to protect their privacy on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, you need it to do payroll. You can't really do it otherwise. Uh, we see CoinSwap, which is even more powerful technology in that respect for anonymity. And these are really built as layers on top of the core transaction layer. They can provide privacy on demand. Uh, personally, I would like to see those implemented in every wallet with reusable addresses going away and having unique addresses for every transaction. And every transaction goes through CoinJoin, whether you know it or not. Just like if you use a browser on the internet today, you use SSL. You do not have a choice to not use SSL for the sites that enforce it. It's end-to-end, -end, it's solid, and the user doesn't know it's on. And I think that should be the, the goal for anonymity, is that every wallet does basic privacy management built in, not reusing addresses, using CoinJoin for every transaction. And when you're not doing transactions, remixing your own addresses with CoinJoin. Jonathan, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, that gets to the point of regulation. I mean, the regulator's not going not gonna to agree to that. Well, the regulators can provide but, identity tracking uh, as, a f as an optional feature on top of those technologies where you can do the appropriate disclosure when you want to. Um, but, uh, you know, the point is the regulators are not going to agree to that. Great. They can go build their own blockchain, which does have that feature, but they don't have consensus on the, on the Bitcoin network, and they do not control the entire globe, and this is a transnational global currency. So if the regulators in one place say no, all that does is it stops some people in that place, mostly the legitimate users, from using it in that locality, while the criminals continue to use it, the regulators themselves continue to use it, and, and the jobs and the growth and the innovation and the votes go elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be a big problem for regulators because you can't do this on a locality-by-locality -locality basis. I think, I think you made a very important point about the way that this evolves, and I think that point has resonated with a number of regulators, but it, sh it should be really underscored that if we, if we make it too hard for this to happen in the United States, the development will go elsewhere, and it won't necessarily have the support of the, the venture capital community, which does have extensive experience in you know, financial markets and regulation, um, and also in you know, just how to, how to run a very complex financial business. And, and, and it exposes legitimate users to risk. Exactly. Because when you don't have a, an, a U.S. exchange at all, still five years on, uh, because they've been squeezed out, what happens is you have poorly managed uh, setups like, like MT Gox being used by most Americans in Japan, and then that collapses and most Americans have no recourse under U.S. law to go after it. So it creates these really bizarre situations because lack of clarity of regulators or knee-jerk reactions by regulators just leads to more poorly managed, less regulated solutions elsewhere. Uh, you know, you, you've raised the question as, as to whether or or you've indicated that it will survive if regulators in various localities decide to stamp down on it. And, I, and it's always an interesting question for me. I mean, right now, you know, for all the people that are using Bitcoin, it's still a relatively small community in the, in the scope of the world. I mean, Jonathan, you were talking about some of your data on this. Um, and it, it does strike me that when we've seen regulators clamp down on this, it has essentially stopped the 
you know, the network from being used in any widespread way in, in those countries. And be interested, I think you might have different opinions on this, on, on, on whether at this point Bitcoin is strong enough to survive if, uh, and maybe Bitcoin, there, there are different ways of looking at this, maybe Bitcoins could survive, but some parts of that technology, as you were indicating, uh, would survive, but what what would happen if regulators in Europe, the U.S., these big economies, did decide to take a harsher stance? So, I mean, I'll, I'll start with saying, I mean, obviously that would be bad, and it would be a hit, and probably it would impact prices and transaction volume over the shorter run. I think that some of the countries where Bitcoin provides the biggest value add above the next best alternative are countries where the rule of law is already weak. So, you know, you have countries with hyperinflation and there's tons of people running around with suitcases full of dollar bills, um, risking their life, risking jail to go to Miami to get those suitcases full of dollar bills. And despite the fact that they're not supposed to have them, that's sort of a thriving sub-economy. And so when I think about the ability of the government to clamp down on that, now maybe they would clamp down on it more if it was Bitcoin and not suitcases full of dollar bills, but I sort of think they're already working hard to clamp down on it. And I think that the technology of Bitcoin is nice if the guy's walking around with two suitcases, you know, one with pesos and one with dollar bills, and he can eliminate the suitcase full of dollar bills, then he's going to be much harder to detect. You can have easier entry into this business of trading uh, assets for uh, your local currency, and, you know, it's going to be almost impossible to clamp down on. I think one of the really interesting scenarios I could see is that in some of these developing countries, maybe poorer people still shouldn't be holding Bitcoin today because it's too volatile, but they could hold dollars. You know, through Bitcoin, they can get onto an exchange. They can exchange their Bitcoins for dollars. And so you could have access to basically a U.S. dollar bank account for the unbanked developing countries that have hyperinflation. And so I don't really see how those countries are going to stop that. Um, if it gets started. So, um, but maybe Jonathan can, can weigh in with some empirical evidence. I think mm-hmm. he has the latest. So, um, just in, in, in the, because the blockchain is a public ledger, you can see that there's been about 26 million public addresses that have been used over the past, since the beginning of the blockchain. Um, and you can also look at what, what value is in each of those addresses. And in my analysis, there's only 250,000 addresses out there with more than a Bitcoin in it. Just have a think about that for a second. 250,000 addresses with, only, with more than one Bitcoin inside. And most of that wealth is contained, 60% of the wealth is contained within addresses with over 1,000 Bitcoins in each address. So we've got a huge concentration of wealth. We've got some walled gardens, so it doesn't give you the exact user uh, distribution. But, I mean, those are all security risks, as we've seen with Mt. Gox. And this is still a very nascent piece of technology that if wants to go mainstream and wants to get a huge user base, probably does need to comply with regulators. And I agree that there's huge value add in protecting the unbanked and extending services to them. But um, one of the problems with, with the, the idea of them holding Bitcoins and then converting into dollars is that what, what, what currency sits on the other side of the Bitcoin transaction? Who's going to trade Bitcoin for Zimbabwean dollars? Local dealers. Yeah. yeah. The, guys with the, suit, the guys that today have the suitcases of the dollars and the suitcases of the Zimbabwe currency. In, in the now they of- lose a suitcase, but they stay in business. <laughs> 
As Susan said, I think very astutely, the places that have the highest uh, regulatory burden because they have the highest need through hyperinflation or collapsing local currencies. And by the way, the number of those places is increasing dramatically as we're seeing a worldwide currency crisis going on at the same time as Bitcoin is emerging. Um, a, A few interesting things happen. First of all, you have capital flight from the rich at the same time as you have remittances flowing into the country, which is rather interesting. It provides a balanced flow. So the reason you can actually have pesos in Argentina moving out is because the rich people are trying to get their money out of the peso. Secondly, if you have a regulated environment that tries to crack down on cryptocurrencies, the people who end up holding cryptocurrencies are the regulators, the cops, the soldiers, the generals, the politicians. When, when hard dollars were banned in Russia, the Politburo was stuffing hard dollars into suitcases. The people above the law are the first to adopt it uh, as their own currency diminishes in value. Uh, so I think that's really a funny situation because it ends up fueling a black market for the currency and makes it more appealing. And in places where the rule of law is weak, if your government says don't do Bitcoin, people go, oh, really? Maybe we should do Bitcoin. <laughs> um, you have the exact opposite effect of what you're trying to achieve. Um, also, we need to realize that in many of these countries, the level of desperation and the level of demand is so high. Like, if you just see your, your life savings disappear in front of your eyes, you're going to go to great extents to, to bypass that law, and you're going to bribe someone in order to do it, in Bitcoin, by the way. The idea of moving people in the developing world out of their own currencies into dollars is appealing. Um, I think, but overall, the volatility is a, is an issue that's going away as the liquidity increases. So I don't think the Bitcoin volatility is an issue. Plus, Bitcoin volatility has been, on the whole, over five years up. Um, if you ask an Argentinian about Bitcoin volatility, they tell, well, my currency's been doing volatility like this. Bitcoin's been doing volatility like that. I'd rather have upwards volatility. As far as converting to dollars, I think that's a really difficult proposition because, um, you know, quite honestly, dollars are not backed by anything and they don't have intrinsic value. Um, So putting your money in a currency that is backed by a Ponzi scheme fueled by the Fed, that's really risky. I think I'd put my money in Bitcoin instead. Well, I I might take a little bit of issue with the last part of the dollar. (laughs) You know, it often makes sense to think about, um, you know, if, if something that's correlated with whether you're getting paid in and what you're going to pay your bills in. And so for countries that are doing a lot of trade with other countries that are more or less sort of tied to the dollar in some way, the dollar makes sense. If you're in the eurozone, then it makes sense to have euros. So there's, there's, some, there's some advantages to having fewer frictions and to having your assets be related to some of your, your liabilities. But, you know, that said, I, I do understand there, there's a on the way up, it's nice to hold it, but I mean, when you're talking about people living paycheck to paycheck, you know, a weekly fluctuation could be a big deal. And then once it finally, as it stabilizes, that stability will come also when the, as the growth slows down, and so then it becomes less interesting to hold just because it's going up. But I agree that sort of in a steady state, it should have, it won't be as great an investment vehicle, but it, it will be easier to hold it without risking not being able to pay your rent or buy your food the next Yeah, time. well, more seriously, in, in the meantime, until Bitcoin achieves a broader adoption and higher levels of liquidity, 
the really killer application is remittances, and in that application, you don't want to use Bitcoin as the endpoints. You want to hide Bitcoin in between, and the endpoints are the local currency. So if you're doing a transfer from Dubai to India, for example, uh, then Bitcoin can blend into the background and just simply facilitate a system where $74 billion are extracted by Western Union in exorbitant profits right now from the poorest people in the world. That's a problem we can solve now, and it will affect a billion people and deliver money into their pockets that will have an immediate effect in their communities. And that's a valid problem that a lot of companies in this space are working on, and it's really admirable that you're seeing that. Uh, focus in much of the Bitcoin space. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. The BitGive Foundation is a nonprofit charitable giving organization leveraging the power of the Bitcoin community to improve public health and the environment worldwide. Help us demonstrate the significant impact of Bitcoin in addressing these critical issues on a global scale. Support international giving in Bitcoin. Please visit our website at www.bitgivefoundation.org. That's www.bitgivefoundation.org. You guys all are doing really interesting research, digging down to levels that uh, most of us never see. And I, I wanted to just go through and hear from each of you sort of what the most recent kind of discovery you've made in this space in your own research is that, you know, might surprise people that surprised you, um, uh, you know, whether it's the data you found or, or patterns. Um, tell me what, what you've been working on that's been interesting. Sure. So one thing that I found that's actually very high level and can be replicated by anybody at home who wants to download some things from blockchain.info is to understand how the, the, the price movements actually relate to fundamentals that it's possible to reason about. So, you know, you have sort of the wackier commentators saying things like, well, the price could be anything. You know, there's no underlying value, so how do I know if $1,000 is a good price or $500 is a, is a good price? Um, you know, there's a, 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 a sort of economist out there who says things like, well, what kind of asset goes from, you know, $50 to $1,000? You know, there must be something wrong. It must be a Ponzi scheme of some sort. And so um, you can sort of refute that with just uh, a little bit of... of plotting of charts. So, you know, it can be hard to reason directly about the Bitcoin price, but you can reason about fundamentals like transaction volume and velocity. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you, so velocity is sort of how frequently things should be used. Now there's no 
how do I know what the velocity of Bitcoin should be? I don't. And in fact, I think the velocity will change as different segments of the market change. So as you get more regular transactions, as you get different wallet apps, as you get different changes from speculation and so on. So it's not a it's not a fundamental constant, but it's something you can reason about and possibly predict and model. And then the transaction volume, of course, the transaction volume is impacted by newspaper articles and by, you know, um, price movements and so on. So it's again, it's all sort of, you know, wrapped up. But at a fundamental level, if you have a certain transaction volume that's occurring on your system, okay, so if you want to support, say, $100 billion worth of transaction volume, you know, we've been going up like this, about, you know, 40, to 40 billion roughly would be an annualized amount now. So it's not crazy that it could go up to 100 billion fairly soon. If you're going to support that level of transaction volume, and if each Bitcoin can be used, say, like five times a year, roughly on average, then that's going to tell you what the exchange rate of dollars to bitcoins has to be. And so if you look out, the thing that surprised me, so this is a rough theory, but none of the underlying things, relationships should necessarily be stable. But if you go out and look at the data, you can actually more or less see that the, the bitcoin prices have rough, roughly tracked transaction volume in the proportions you would expect with a roughly constant velocity. And it's kind of surprising because the market is so nascent and there's so many things left out of that sort of simple analysis. And so what I, what I take from that is just that this market is not sort of crazy, it's not completely divorced from fundamentals, and that the price movements have tracked in the use of the system in a broad sense. Hmm. It's an efficient market. It's, 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 it's not, it's not, it, the price fluctuations right. aren't just coming out of nowhere. It's a rational market. Yep. It, 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 looks, it looks like it's, it, 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 you can understand the rough outlines of the market through fundamentals. Yeah, I, 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 I haven't seen exactly that. I think if you look at the number of transactions on the blockchain, it has absolutely no relation to the price, which is something that I think is like telling in a market that doesn't behave like a currency like we would like to see it. I agree that the velocity of money, um, if you could measure into user trades, would be a perfect model of the fair Bitcoin price. But at the moment, the number of transactions is invariant to the price, and the transaction volumes don't have an impact when the volume changes. And the exchange trades also don't map onto the, tra the transactions on the blockchain. So I I'm finding it difficult to see all the like, solid relationships at the moment. So, so I would agree that as you dig deeper, it gets more complex. But if you download the data from blockchain.info and draw a few pictures and do, and do a few divisions, uh, you can get a nice, uh, pretty picture. So I can show that to you. Yeah. Like. Are, right. are there any pieces of uh, relationships you have seen that have been uh, interesting in the data you're looking at? Yeah, I was actually going to say that, <laughs> contrary to that, that the, the, the fact that the number of transactions doesn't relate at all to the number of users coming onto the system or anything like that is something that I found quite surprising. Um, the other thing that I thought was pretty surprising is that there's a bunch of um, transaction fees that are just sitting um, in, a, in the memory pool that aren't being picked up by miners. So the mining market is not picking up all those transaction fees. That's a little bit of sort of irrational mining behavior that still needs to be worked on. Hmm. Well, I, I would say that's not 
irrational behavior, the the ability to which the, the speed at which you can propagate a block depends on its size, and therefore, uh, given that the reward is disproportionately biased towards reward instead of transaction fees at the moment, uh, getting out a smaller block at high speeds in order to collect the reward. Because keep in mind, you don't probabilistically decrease your reward collection. You either get it or you don't, and it's a race. So. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a rational yeah. response, leaving transactions out in order to make a smaller block. Uh, but that's a, that's a really bad thing for the network. It's a bad thing for the network now, but over time I think it, it balances out and we're going to see that gradually change, but we'll see. Um, to me, the most interesting thing is the change in relationship between the authority of issuance of a currency and its monetary value. So up to 2008, sovereignty created currency. The fact that a, a scarce sovereign entity could create a currency is what gave it value. And now I foresee a world where we're going to have hundreds of thousands of currencies. Because currency at its very basic level is a language, it's a form of expression, a language that is used to communicate the transfer of value between individuals. If you look at uh, a primary school and you look at you know, little hominids in their native environment, what they do is they invent currency. Uh, it spontaneously emerges from the social interaction. They trade bubblegum, they trade rubber bands, they trade Pokemon, they trade Tamagotchi. Um, trading as an exchange of values and emergent property of social behavior. So when anyone can create a currency, when Joey can launch Joey Coin in his school with two clicks of a web interface in order to compete against Maria Coin in a popularity contest, we will have millions of currencies. Asking how many currencies we will have is equivalent to asking how many bloggers will there be on the internet. And the answer is all of us. Um, once you understand currency as a conversation, the next question is what gives it monetary value? And when sovereignty isn't the source of authority, use is the source of monetary value. So user adoption is what gives a currency value. And that creates a very interesting situation because you could imagine 10 years from now in a, a small uh, tribal region in a remote place of the world and people are using uh, Dogecoin as their primary currency. And they have no idea what a Shiba Inu is. And they have no idea what this dog is doing on their currency. But guess what? They had no idea what the old white lady that said Queen Elizabeth was on their currency either in colonial times. And they used it anyway. And it has monetary value for them. We're going to be surprised by what creates monetary value. And so my last prediction is this. Up to 2008, sovereignty created currency. We now live in a world where currency create sovereignty. And Bitcoin is the currency that will give internet sovereignty in the form of financial and purchasing power. And that is a very powerful idea. We have 30 seconds. Um, you guys have all have allowed you all to sound very smart. Now I'm going to ask you the stupid question that you don't get to give any explanation for. But price of Bitcoin in a year, the price of Bitcoin in five years. Uh, we were supposed to ask this question, so I'm going to make it the last one that you can uh, leave all these wonderful people with. We should, we should start on that end, then. Yeah, Andreas. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't really know. I, and I know you don't. Do, we, we can't get a, okay. a number. For, for, for at any point in the future where you would, where you would imagine this? Well, I, I think the price of Bitcoin will stabilize in the several thousands of dollars at some point uh, in the near future. Certainly Good way answer. above it's going to be here. Yeah, in the, in the couple thousand in a year or so. I'm going to go 500 in a year. Okay, that's all. <laughs> We're done.
Thanks for listening to episode 96 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Adam B. Levine, Patrick Merck, Susan Athey, Jonathan Levin, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Nathaniel Popper. Special thanks to Coin Summit for the great event and panel. This episode was produced and edited by Adam B. Levine, with live field engineering provided by Crystal Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.